How many of you know there are many passages in the Bible which are sometimes very difficult to understand? Can I see hands, please? Okay. Today is one of these days. One of these passages which is really challenging. And today it comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And one thing you've got to ask yourself as we look at this today is, do the difficult passages contain timeless truths or not? Today, they contain timeless truths about wives and husbands. Some people have said, well, are these culturally bound? Piece of advice that belonged to a bygone era of 2,000 years ago. In a different culture, are we free to ignore what is in the word of God? You may have thought that yourself, huh? Yeah, fair question. But if we ignore them, why are they in the Bible? Why are they the word of God to us? Now, one of the great things about teaching through the book of the Bible, just like we're doing in 1 Peter, is that we can't ignore the hard bits. You know, all those other places that you haven't underlined and highlighted, they are the hard bits. The easy bits are the ones that you've highlighted in yellow and pink and green and blue. They are the easy bits. So today, we're going to tackle this passage and see what God has to say both about husbands and wives and how we can use this passage in our lives today. So I want to put some context. The basis of good Bible understanding is to always understand the context. Now, Peter, as we know, as we've been working through 1 Peter for the last, uh, actually about five weeks now, has been discussing this matter of living in a world in such a way as to reach the world for Jesus Christ, right? Remember he said that. Now, and it's important to see when we're living in the world, whether it's in the marketplace or at university, that we actually maintain our testimony. That is imperative because we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Now, earlier, a little earlier, um, in 2 Peter 11 through 25, Peter's, Peter's been focusing on explaining that believers need to act, need to behave in an exemplary manner so that our testimony isn't damaged. And he tells all believers in 1 Peter 2.13, actually, he says, For the Lord's sake, nothing to do with yours, but for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution. And he's already addressed, remember, how as a Christian we're to live in um, a secular society under a caustic government. Remember, Nero was the first year he talked about. And then how does a Christian live in a non-Christian employment place? Remember he talked about that too. That was a second. So we went from government to employment in a secular environment. Now as Christians, Peter now, and was then, encouraging Christians not to be rebels, but to work within the system, within it, and serve God. Not to go hibernate in a cave. Now though, he's going to drop it down from government he went to employment, and now he's going to drop it down into how does a Christian live with a non-Christian spouse? How does a Christian live with a non-Christian partner? What does a wife do when she's married to an unsaved husband? Which, by the way, is a very and was a very prevalent uh, factor, and I'll explain later. Especially when that unsaved husband is extremely difficult to live with. And it's a common situation in the first century as it is today for the wives to become Christians before their husbands. Very common. So this passage, I want to set from the outset, is a discussion of a mixed marriage, 
where you have a Christian partner and a non-Christian partner. And this portion of scripture sets out the larger context he's just talked about. So in the bigger context of submitting to government, submitting to employers, we've already been through that. He now comes down to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husband so that even if some of them do not obey the word, in other words, they don't accept it, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Now, first thing I want you to circle there is those in the same way, or the word is likewise. And referred back, just like I've told you guys, he said, Peter's saying, hey, just as I've told you about the way you to deal work with secular governments, as I've told you the way to deal with secular employers, I'm now talking about how to handle it in a mixed marriage. Except the authority of every human institution, he says in 2.13, not only to those who are good and gentle, that was back to the employers, but to those who are unjust or difficult to work with. Now, Peter was encouraging believing wives to have a positive motives for the Lord's sake, not because he deserves it, not because the, back to the employer, because they deserve it, but for the Lord's sake, even when an unbelieving husband made life very challenging. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Have a positive attitude with respect. Now, in the Greek culture in which Peter lived, a woman, for a woman to change her religion, independent of her husband, was unthinkable. You just didn't do that. That was like poke him in the eye. It was almost, it was a very tricky spot to live within. Now, why? Because sadly, women were treated back then like property. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Jesus lifted the status of woman. Their opinion was unfortunately considered irrelevant, immaterial, and unwanted. And she would have to be very wise and careful to influence her husband in the right way in that culture. So what Peter's initially portraying is that she needs to work within the authority of her unbelieving husband in obedience to Christ to keep harmony in the family and to encourage unbelieving husbands to believe. That's the objective, to help them believe. That is the objective. So, now I need to clear some things up. I'm going to say something about this, and then at the very end I'm going to quote from one of my interesting uh, and very uh, learned friends. But I want to clear a few things up here, because there's a lot of nonsense talked about this, this passage of Scripture. Submission of the wife to an unbelieving husband was often misunderstood and is horrendously still misunderstood today, sadly. So, I thought the best way to do this, just briefly, in the time we've got, is to define what submission does not mean. So it's in black and white. Number one, submission does not mean putting a husband in the place of Christ. In other words, putting the will of the husband before Jesus Christ. It does not mean that for a believing wife. Secondly, it doesn't mean giving up independent thought. You, in other words, that you must agree with your husband on every issue. That's ridiculous. I think that's la-la land. That's delusional. Even on things in the Christian faith. Since God has made you women with a mind. It's a gift from God. Now, she had committed to Jesus, typically, and he was committed to Zeus. Or one of the other ones, Osiris. Whoever it may be, another God. Don't give in to that, he was saying. Third, 
it doesn't mean giving up efforts to influence her husband and to guide her husband. And Peter helps to do this. He says that he might, the objective is that he may be won over by your conduct. See, she's called to live with him. And so Peter's saying, don't leave over the issue of religion in a split situation. Don't rebel. Stay all and do all that you can to try and win the guy over. This is the objective. Elsewhere in the scriptures, Paul agrees. He says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, you probably meet a few of those, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Because it's an opportunity to get the guy across the line. That's the why. See, divorce was also to be avoided because the Christian spouse was a channel of God's blessing into that household and brought grace to the children and in the marriage. She was a positive, she's positive salt and positive light in that situation. Fourth, it does, submission does not mean giving in to every demand of her husband. Blind obedience that is not taught in Scripture anywhere. It says, if he says, yeah, for example, let's get involved in a scam, or let's do something ethical, like lie, you know, or why don't you just stop being a Christian like me and join me? You know, she'll have to humbly say, no, I can't. My conscience doesn't allow me to do that. That's okay. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Five, it never means, please listen, never, ever, ever means submitting to any sort of abuse. Or participating in what, a, in what her Holy Spirit directed conscience forbids. It also does not mean that she's of any less intelligence or competence. Nothing to do with that. Actually, I want to suggest to you, she's smarter than this unbelieving husband. She's shown greater spiritual insight than a husband because she has seen and perceived and acted on the truth of Christianity. Husband hasn't quite got it yet. Seven. It is absolutely nothing to do with equality in Christ or inferiority. And eight, it's, it's not being fearful or timid. Actually, you're going to see that Peter said, you ladies, you need to act with courage. So this gives a bit of perspective here. So Peter had in mind a Christian wife interacting with her unbelieving husband. And she needed to be submissive and according to the cultural norms in order to save her marriage. And even sometimes, I'm pained to say this, even her life. Tricky situation. See, in the early church, there were secretive meetings. You've all heard about those, right? And you're thinking right now, it was to hide from governments, which it was. But there was another side to that. To make sure their husbands were also not necessarily provoked. Because many women gave their lives to Christ. In fact, if you look at the, the, the women that followed Christ around, some of them were very smart businesswomen who actually funded a lot of the ministry of Jesus. Did you know that? So let's get this in perspective is what I'm trying to say. So the reason Peter directs these first few verses, just a couple of women, is because of this potentially very difficult social problem. So, different situation when we've got both wives and husbands who are Christians. In that case, the woman should respect the God-given authority in her husband while the husband should treat his wife lovingly and in a gentle manner. A woman should respect the God-given authority given her by a God 
but the, wife, the husband should treat his wife in a loving and gentle manner. So a wife who accepts her husband's authority is accepting the relationship that God has designed and giving her husband leadership and responsibility. The two go hand in hand. Leadership, same at work, in business. You never delegate authority without accountability. Stupid. You never ever want to accept accountability with no authority. Stupid. To accept authority, what does that mean? Here it is. This is what it means. You may want to get this right. To cooperate voluntarily with someone else out of love and respect for God and that person. That's what it means. Not some high-handed, heavy-handed deal. To cooperate voluntarily with someone else out of love and respect for God and that person. Now, this may shock you. Because we're going to touch on a little bit of this. Christian marriage involves mutual submission. Oh, yeah. Look at this, Ephesians 5.21. Paul wrote here, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But when only one partner believes, he's getting a submission can be a very effective strategy to win unbelieving husbands. And let me be really clear. I've actually had quite a challenge on my hands on that one because sometimes people will ask me to marry them when one is a Christian and one is not. And I have said no even when I've known this person 35 years. Painful. But I don't think it's the right thing to do because my conscience forbids me for doing that. So here's my point. Young people, the scriptures are clear. It's not here now, but if you look at that, the scripture says, do not be unequally yoked. Doesn't matter how good looking she is or how much of a hunk he is, don't do that. You're asking for big, big trouble. And God's blessing will not be on that. Because his perfect will is that you marry somebody. Now, now, by the way, that doesn't mean to say love a perfect marriage. You can marry some Christian who's very immature. Use your head. Look, are they, are they helping out around the home? Girls? Do they know how to cook? Do they know what a pan looks like? Do they know how to dry a dish? Do you know that the scriptures talks about a man wiping a dish, drying it and turning it over? So there's a biblical basis for men doing dishes. None of this chauvinistic dilly did. Right, let's get to this. So mixed marriages, here's my point, require tremendous strength. And if that speaks to your situation, ask God for the power of the Holy Spirit to help you obey Christ in your marriage. Here we are. Let's go back to one and then we'll get moving. Verse 1 and 2. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without Words, without words. In other words, you're not sticking verses to the bottom of his beer can. Whoa, what's that at the bottom of there? That's not the way to do this. <laughs> okay. That they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. You can see the echoes back to the employer, right? Yeah? You can, you can see the echo. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. In, in the first century, when a man became a Christian, you know what he'd normally do? He'd bring his whole family to church. The whole lot. Because they went where Papa went. A good example of that will be in Philippians. Chapter, what is it, 16. Excuse me, Acts 16. Acts 16, 29. Remember, in the middle of the blooming night, Paul sprung out of jail. Remember that? This is about midnight, if I remember correctly. And then they have a baptism, sir. He gets the whole family up. Guys. Ow. Guys. He says, get up. Look what's just happened. Paul's been sprung from jail. 
And he was so um, overawed by this, he gets the whole family, including all the kids out the bed, and you know what they do in the middle of the night? Probably about 3 a.m. What's that, Denise? They get baptized. 3 a.m. Some of you are holding out for a cop-out, waiting to get baptized. 3 a.m. in the morning that day. No messing around. Oh, I've got to be perfect. That's a ridiculous lie. Anyway, the whole whole family would typically come to church. By contrast, if a woman became a Christian, she usually came to church alone. That was dangerous. Under Roman law, the husband and father had authority just under the Roman law over all the members of his household, including his wife. And a wife who demanded, I'm out of here type of style, her rights as a free woman in Christ could endanger her marriage and even sadly, possibly her life. This is the context. Important to understand it. Instead, Peter's saying, try and live with your new faith wisely and respectfully in the situation you find yourself in. Now, did Peter forbid his wife to witness? Obviously not. Peter was advising married partners on how to treat their spouses. So if your husband is a non-believer, Peter says you could strengthen your marriage by not preaching, not sticking the daily word or some tract under his, in his driver's seat or wherever it may be, but by living a loving and holy life and letting God provide the opportunity for you to witness through your actions. Now, under those circumstances, the wise best approach will be witnessing by their behavior, their attitudes reflecting a loving service, and their lives should be reflecting purity and reverence. Those two words. Purity refers to the behavior that is free from moral defilement. That means the wife should be pure for the husband's sake, but also they would have to disobey when the husband's asked them to do something morally wrong, for example, in some of the pagan practices, which were very wrong. She, Peter was saying, don't put up with that. Reverence is the same word as respect. Do so with respect. So those wives really needed to be wise. Now, by being exemplary wives, they would please their husbands. At least, if that happened, the men would allow their wives to continue practicing their strange, weird religion. They'd allow that. But at best, their husbands would join them and become Christians. So, next section is verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, and fine clothes. Now, writing to Christian wives here, Peter took particular note of their concerns. These women wanted to be attractive. Good thing to do. As in the case today, though, society's focus was on outward adornment. I did a bit of reading around the history for all of this. You would not believe. A lot of the women had purple hair in those days. Purple. Wow. That was expensive, as Denise pointed out to me. <laughs> so there's no different there. They were, they were trying to achieve worldly beauty by hairstyles and jewelry and clothes. I understand that. Same today. But Peter contrasts something here, putting beautiful things on the outside compared to the natural inner beauty that a Christian woman should have because of Christ. Note, not that women should not braid their hair or have gold jewelry that's not in the text or nice clothes. Not at all. He is not saying that. This passage was just saying this. Let that, your outward, be, let it not be your insistent preoccupation to the disregard of the inner beauty. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying. Next verse, verse 4. Rather, on the contrary, he's saying, let your adornment be the inner self, 
with the lasting, circle that word lasting, beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. Not in the world's, but in God's sight. Now, instead of only adorning, only adorning themselves on the outside, Christian women here are to have a beauty emanating from the inner self, the attitudes, thoughts, and the motivations that reveal that are revealed in words that come out of our mouths and actions. For believers, this inner self is being transformed by the Holy Spirit daily. Contrast that to the temporal fashions. So we've got things that last compared to the temporal ones, styles and fashions. I used to laugh. I used to tease my daughter because my daughter loves fashion, right? Every time she'd come out of her bedroom when she was at home, she'd have a different deal on it. I just used to laugh, crack up. I said, darling, don't you realize that every single year they change all these things? So you, they're trying to incent you to keep on buying, 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 buying. And I said, I don't know about you, but things, you know, these come and the fashions and styles come and go. Here, it becomes gray. After four children, see what happens? <laughs> okay, jewelry gets lost. I've already lost one wedding ring, water skiing. And clothes wear out. But there is a beauty that is lasting. Now, this word lasting, Paul, uh, Peter uses here in, in, intentionally. It's used in the New Testament to describe the heavenly realities that will remain for eternity. That's the word lasting. It's not just, don't blow that word off. See, words are symbols of thought. And if we misunderstand the word, our thinking will be wrong. So the word lasting is used in the New Testament to describe Heavenly realities that will remain. The only kind of beauty with that quality, Peter writes, is a, the beauty of a gentle and the quiet spirit. Which means, let me define, unpack that. Gentle means to show humility. Not bolshy and like a bulldozer. Don't worry, I'm going to get to the guys in a minute. So hold your hats, ladies. Gentle means showing consideration, not being overly assertive. You meet those people, guys and girls, who always have to be on the top of the pile, always have to be right, overly competitive. Anything you say, they challenge. You met them? That's what he's getting at here. To be quiet doesn't mean to be a mouse. What it means is to be under calm control, not always in the hissy fit. You know, just out of control. And guess what? Half these qualities... What he's pointing people towards, that, don't they sound interesting? They're saying very similar to me, to love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So he's all batting in the same direction, which is godly. Being quiet means not causing dissensions. Everywhere you go, there's a brouhaha. You've probably seen some of those folks at your work, and strife, and inappropriate words, or gossip. This is what he's getting at. Not only is such a spirit a blessing to the people around, especially the woman's husbands, it's also very precious in the sight of God. Verse 5. It was in this way long ago that holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by accepting the authority of their husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, it was in this way refers back to being adorned with gentle and a quiet spirit. And Peter was explaining here that the holy women of the past were both holy and beautiful. Not because they lived perfect lives or had perfect marriages. They didn't or had perfect looks. But because they hoped in God in the middle of a bunch of unpredictability. Another ancient writer understands this well. He says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Boy, how many people do you know that look great? But boy, underneath is a snake. Huh? 
Charm is deceptive. Yeah? And beauty is fleeting. You got it? No, you ain't got it. <laughs> but thank God we're going to get it back. Because <laughs> those of us who are Christians, thank Jesus, we get new bodies. But uh, let's go back to the point. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, I just want you to notice something here and just think about this, this, this woman, Sarah, for a moment. I thought, what is he on about this week? This has been a tough, tough passage of scripture to go through. So I look at it and think about Sarah's perspective for a moment. Her husband claims to have visions from God and in his old age, about 70-odd, says, get up, we're going to move the whole family in Farnia. Where are we going? Hey, well, I don't know. That doesn't sound like very decisive leadership to me, right? I mean, that woman put up with a lot. You can read that in Genesis 12. Then, this is a bit conniving. I'm just calling it as it is. Abraham convinces Sarah to pretend that she's his sister. What? This isn't the top drawer stuff, right? Why? Because he's a wuss. He's scared of getting his pants spanked by a king. So he says, look, if you pretend she's my sister, he won't take you. Anyway, long story short, he put her in great jeopardy. Genesis 12, 10. This is a hard one for some of you people who think about possessions and finance a lot. She followed her husband's lead when Abraham surrendered the best grazing land to his cousin Lot. Did you take that? She's going, what the heck are you doing? That's the best you're giving it away. Sarah didn't have a good time, did she? Now, not only the first time does he pass her off as a sister, he does it the second time. He does it twice. With regard to Abimelech. And then, to take the cake, the thing that a lot of people, oh, I, would have, I, mean, I don't know how she did this. This is the top. What? She endures a near sacrifice of her only son. Oh, can you imagine the air in that tent that night? <laughs> They've been skinning the air flight, I'm sure, in the hands of Abraham, claiming that God had instructed them to do this. That is one hard sell. <laughs> so, from Sarah's point of view, you can understand that she could appear to be uh, married to a man who was unpredictable. <laughs> Let's get up and go. <laughs> Devious. Hey, tell him you're my sister. Foolish. Give things away, all sorts of things, rash and irresponsible. Yet, so that's that. That's a fact. On the other hand, Peter commends her. Not because of a secure, perfect marriage, but because of her insecure and imperfect marriage. Sarah becomes a paragon of cooperation with her husband and hope in God for all believers. So, six, you become her daughters as long as you do what is good and never let fears alarm you. Sarah did a good job at that. So finally, Peter called upon Christian wives to do what is good and never let fears alarm them. Now, as a Christian woman's faith in God, what it would do is it would help her not be afraid. So Peter then counsels family peace, but with a limit. There's a limit on these things. The first priority of a Christian woman married to an unbeliever was always God. That's number one priority. Peter knew how tough it would be on some women at that time had no legal redress. This is serious stuff. 
But Peter's word of hope to women and everyone who suffers the faith is to trust in God. He talked about that with, under the government. He talked about that with employers. And now he's talking in the family. So it's all consistent. But again, let me just re-emphasize this one more time lest somebody hears me wrong. This does not mean that God expects women to ex accept physical abuse in their marriage. Women who live with men who show a pattern of physical abuse should withdraw to a safe place and seek protection from family members or other members to keep them from harm and seek professional help. Let me tell you something else. An abusive person will never be helped or never be saved by giving in to that stuff. Don't put up with that. That is God's will. Now, breaking the cycle of abuse can only start when the abused person gets help and accountability. Accountability. Now, whew, you ladies can now just take a big chill. We're now going to turn the page into the next verse, in verse 7, actually the next verse. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, this verse contains three strong imperatives. Quickly, live with your wife, live with your wife, know your wife, and honor your wife. I'm going to drill into those. Before we jump into those three commands, though, notice how he begins the address. It's very easy to miss this. He says, you husbands likewise, or in the same way. That sounds very familiar, because he's just been talking about that earlier. This is exactly the same language that parallels Peter's opening in the line to wives. Because of the hope we have in Christ, we can find security in him, and for his sake, submit ourselves to others in every context of life. Government, employment, and marriage. Don't be so cantankerous. So just as Christian wives have certain responsibilities, Christian husbands have equally important roles to play. Husbands are to live with their wives. Well, what does that mean? I know some people who live together as business partners and nothing more. They do their thing, they do their thing, and they just it's cheaper to live under one roof, and they, even though they're married, they're effectively business partners because it works. But it means to dwell in close relationship. This means physically. Now, most of us in this room are the appropriate age, so let me just say it. This does not mean, that, that means seeing your husband and wife sexually at regular intervals, not hanging out for months and months and months, unless you're sick. Or, as the Bible says, unless you're committed to prayer, but I guarantee you ain't praying for three months in the end. <laughs> so let me just say that. Emotionally, close, not distant. Mentally, close. Sharing things, that means sharing your thoughts. Some wives have described me, their husbands, like if, you, if they talk to them, it's like a bump on the log. There's nothing much happening, just not, not much interaction, not much understanding of them. And spiritually, do you share things spiritually? Or you go your way, you do your thing. Husbands can too easily substitute, here it is carefully, making a living and meeting physical needs for sharing their time, their words. And this one's a hard one. Their feelings. 
But this kind of close relationship is necessary to truly live with our wives. Two, husbands are to know their wives. That means that the husbands are to dwell together with their wives according to knowledge. We're not talking about superficial things like, well, if you can on certain types of foods or certain types of colors. Peter is getting at here, in the original meaning here, a deep understanding and appreciation for one's wife, her needs, her desires. And it involves discerning, and this is a hard part, unspoken and spoken worries. And it includes assisting her working through the issues in a caring manner. Now, that's a hard thing to do. I am not a paragon of this. I guess some of that, no excuse. I grew up in the house where my dad, I never saw anything happen like that. And I'm learning more to not just suck it up and get on with it, but to try and understand a bit more. It includes assisting her through the issues in the camera, which means a moment-by-moment -moment understanding of one's wife, not just production and achievement. Peter also urges husbands to treat their wives the way they would treat. Now, I want to get to this part, because a lot of people misunderstand this, as the weaker vessel. Some people go, oh, that sounds I'm not weak. But you're misunderstanding. He's literally saying, treat her like a delicate vase, something very precious. Don't be rough with her. The idea is that the husband's tendency can be literally to, as my mum used to say, roam around like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> he doesn't know. He's wagging his tail and demolishing all around him. That's what it's getting at. Instead, Peter's saying he's to treat his wife like a fine piece of china, tenderly, carefully, with gentleness. So Peter's description here of the weaker vessel is not ever meant to demean a woman or regard her with less value. It is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. The phrase generally means to, we're talking about generally physical strength. And I can say that's pretty much the case. I've never, never met another woman in my life who's been stronger than me until one walked through the door. Her name was Valerie Villey. Holy moly, Steve! Where'd you get her from? She could hardly fit through my door. She was a big girl. Well, she was a shop putter. Remember Valerie? Well, Valerie Adams is a married name, right? Well, Steve and her used to train together. She's an exception. But this is not what Peter's talking about here. So when Peter calls on husbands to understand their wives, treating them as one would a, treat a delicate vessel, he has in mind a woman's needs for physical care and protection. Be careful with that vase. Don't let anything touch that thing. Now this is still true today, but it was especially relevant for the ancient world where a woman could easily fall victim to crime or that a husband's projection could get into serious legal jeopardy. Another clear implication that, is, that Peter calls on is to husbands to reject all forms of verbal and physical abuse. That's super clear. Three, husbands are to honor their wives. Now at this point, Peter makes it really clear that he views women as honorable, and let me be really clear on this, equal partners. In the marriage relationship. There's some um, stinking thinking. 
about this around, and it needs to be cleared up with the scriptures. God's word sheds light into it. Husbands are to assign their wives a place of honor. And a, wife, a man's top priority should be his wife, occupying the greatest place in his heart. Because what happens, I've noticed, having married, 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 or performed the ceremony, that sounds like I've got multiple wives, having married many women, <laughs> I have seen where a, a man starts off with absolutely the right intentions. And he gives his heart to that woman, and they're doing all right, that thing. And then let's roll down the road, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And all of a sudden what I've seen is that, yeah, he's still doing the deal, but his heart is now after his business. His heart now is after some new, new venture, new conquest. And that freshness and that top priority in his, his life has been swapped around. It was his wife, now it's whatever the next project is. That's what he's getting at here. Also, in his schedule. So the way to test that is simple. Whip out the diary. Is there anything in your calendar this week? Don't put it in now. That's got some time for your wife. Anything. And it's up to you to initiate it. Don't wait for her. Men, we're called to initiate. If in your marriage, somebody's always saying, if it's a woman that's saying, let's, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this, there's a problem. You need to initiate in your marriage, let's. You're the one that should be saying, let's do this. She may say no to love them, but at least you're initiating. Find one that she will work with. So husbands are to assign their wives a place of honor, and a wife, a man's wife, should be his top priority in his schedule as well. If, he's, if, if she's not in there, I would suggest to you, she's probably not up there. And it's good for all of us, me included, to reprioritize that. When I was an executive, my, my days were ridiculous. 300 emails a day. What I used to do is, before the week started, I'd have the calendar up. And I'd say, one thing I wanted to do with Stephen this week, and I'd put it in the diary. Another thing for Helen, what, just one. One thing for Josh, one thing for Kimberly, and one thing for Nathan. That's it. That got in before work got a piece of me. Then, if somebody wanted to know something, sorry, can't do that, I'm there. So, in other words, there's some integrity. The important things in my life, work is just a means to an end. Put the things that are important in your calendar first. And Peter's saying, make sure your wife's there. A man who respects his wife will protect her, will honor her, and will help her. He will respect her opinions, listen to her opinions. May not agree with them all. That's okay. I don't even agree with my own ones sometimes. Be considerate of her needs. And relate to her both privately and publicly with love and courtesy and insight and tact. So, finally, Peter points out that the great purpose for maintaining domestic harmony, you mean, is so that your prayers will not be hindered. Ever tried to pray after having an argument with your spouse? The kind of words get stuck, right? Don't want to do this. That's probably not a bad thing. They'd say, honey, right now, not, it's probably not the best time. Can you just give me a bit? In other words, so we can get our act together, right? When a husband and wife don't keep their married life intact, they will have trouble keeping their spiritual life intact. Why? Because there's a direct correlation which people often want to avoid between the love of God and the love of fellow believers. And you'll find that in 1 John 4.20. He says, don't tell me. John's pretty straight. He's old. He's got nothing to hide. He says, don't tell me you love God and you don't love your neighbor. Listen. Even your, even your spouse. He says, don't do that. 1 John 4.20. So marriage then functions like a barometer. 
measuring our spiritual lives through our everyday relationship. Now, I haven't put this there, but I want to read this so you can see the balance. Because in this short time we've got, it's hard to get the balance. But I thought the best thing I can do is read God's word to bring balance to this. Follow me with this in Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27. Here it is. This is now to the husbands again. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she may be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The two shall become as one. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in a sentence, love and respect. That's what that's saying. Now, whenever we interpret these passages in their correct biblical, historical context, we'll find that these truths transcend culture, personal preference, and human wisdom. And everything we do in the Christian life is to be governed by a godly, Christ-honoring, Christ-like behavior that demonstrates humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love and mutual submission. We should look to the one perfect example for this of humility and submission. Of course, that was Jesus. This means, as we wrap this up, wives should treat their husbands with respect. Children should cooperate with their parents. Employees should work for their bosses with sincerity and integrity. Husbands should love their wives and humbly lead the family like, like Christ modeled for us. Because remember, Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I'm the king. Serve me. He actually says in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, frankly, I want to finish this with a, a zinger from one of my friends. Some men have co-opted some verses in the Scriptures, not all, some, to justify taking unfair advantage of their wives and neglecting the self-sacrificing, loving nature of the servant relationship which God has called us to do. Let me give it to you. It's not on your outline. John Stott, he sets us straight on the record. He says this, We have to be very careful not to overstate this biblical teaching and authority. It does not mean that the authority of the husbands, parents, and masters is unlimited, or that wives or children and workers are required to give unconditional obedience. No, the submission is required to God's authority, delegated to human beings, and if therefore they misuse their God-given authority, for example, by commanding what God forbids, then our duty is to no longer conscientiously submit but conscientiously refuse to do so. I hope that's clear. All of us long to be loved and nourished and cherished. So let's 
bring these attitudes and actions into our marriages and ask Christ to transform them into a mirror of his wondrous grace. Let's pray. Lord, we understand that today there are some even gathered here in difficult situations. And so we pray today, not even so much for the direct salvation of the partner right now, as we pray for the virtue of that Christian in the marriage. Lord, would you bless those wives who have unsaved husbands and make them all you want them to be. Would you bless those husbands that have unsaved wives and make them all that their husbands should be. Father, that the end goal would be eventually that their partner may be one for you. And in order that their prayers for salvation of their mate may not be hindered for Jesus' precious sake. Amen.